This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Here in Hawaii, there are families with ties to Ukraine who are understandably are on edge. Hilo resident uh, Artem Sergeyev has been in touch daily with relatives in Kyiv. He says they are safer now. He and his mother are touched by the outpouring of support by the Big Island community. You may know them as vendors setting, selling their poroshkis and borscht at markets in Hilo Town, Honoka'a, and Waimea every weekend. They say the kindness of the community is comforting. Sergeyev works for the Hawaiian Electric and Light Company and helps his mother at the weekend markets. He was born in Kyiv and lived there till he was seven. He's talked with his relatives in Ukraine almost daily and says they are trying to say to stay safe indoors. Ninety-nine percent of my family is still there. I have an aunt, a couple uncles. Uh, my biological dad is there, and my brothers and a sister is there as well. So, what are they telling you about how this has changed their lives? Uh, well, my dad, he's he's pretty old school. He said um, I actually just talked to him yesterday, and he told me I asked him if he wanted what he wanted me to tell the world or he, what he wanted the world to know and he said um, you could tell your fellow citizens about the crime against our people and uh, we're here to um, we're in the spotlight now so but he everyone's really really brave I feel like um, they we asked them what they needed and uh, what we can send them and they said, we're hanging in there. Don't send us anything. Just uh, donate and send to the, the troops and the self-defense forces. And so so tell us about your family here. How did you end up in Hawaii? So here, it's just um, me and my mom are living on the island at the moment. And my uh, my younger sister, she was here, but she moved to the States at the moment. And uh, we, we actually immigrated to Alaska first. And so the first 14 years, I grew up in Alaska. But living in Alaska, you visit the big island every winter when you have a chance. So we started coming here back in 2004, I think. And we were actually in the small town of Honoka'a all the time. And we just kept coming back and coming back. And then um, eventually my mom moved here. And after I uh, finished with, uh, I served in the Navy for four years. And after I got out, she just told me to move here and help her kind of, you know, develop and help her business. She owns the um, Ukrainian, uh, like we sell Ukrainian food, it's like a bakery here on the island. And so people who may have seen you at these markets have probably bought your piroshkis. <laughs> yes, we've had an overwhelming gathering of people. Everyone comes and they send their support and they say that they stand in Ukraine and, and that we're their Ukraine is in their thoughts and it's overwhelming. My mom, you know, she, she's up there trying to sell the, talk to the customers, but sometimes she needs to kind of step away because she kind of tears up from all the support that we're getting from everyone, Russian speakers, Ukrainians, and local people as well, and tourists. Every, I think every weekend at every market, we meet someone new that's a Russian speaker that's from the island <laughs> or visiting. No one really asks like, oh, are you Russian or Ukrainian? You know, if you speak Russian, it, you're automatically we understand you and you know we understand we support each other and so how are you looking at this conflict it's wild in today's uh world we're basically like live streaming a war uh you can get minute second updates um just on twitter or any other social media and uh, it's horrible but at the same time i think the silver lining is it's kind of brought the world together and shined a a spotlight on something of what can still happen in this modern age that we live in and that it's just really important to 
know how to navigate misinformation and how to get together and, and support and understand um, everyone's causes and uh, struggles. Some people think that the threat of uh, nuclear uh, alerts on high alert is um, on the Putin side is uh, maybe him just like knowing he isn't getting uh, everything's not going to plan and this is kind of his last hurrah to try to um, intimidate you know the world in Ukraine others are saying that this is this is real and everyone is going to higher alerts it's um, I don't know I guess I'm optimistic and uh, hope that nothing's going to escalate when I was in the Peace Corps I served in um, I was in 2019 I was um, in North Macedonia, I was serving as an English teacher, but I did take a, a, a couple of days and visit Ukraine and my family. And I can't, I can't imagine the, the Peace Corps volunteers that served in Ukraine and the enormous community that they built there in the two years they were there. And, uh, yeah, I can't imagine the, um, how they're feeling. Anything else? Uh, keep, keep up to date in the news, and um, there's plenty of... Uh, social media posts about how you can um, support Ukraine and and it doesn't even have to be monetary. Actually, monetary support is kind of sketchy because there's you know you don't know where the money's going right away unless you're um, the organization is verified. Obviously, non-governmental organizations are preferred if you do donate. But uh, yeah, just support the way you can. Sh- share your posts. Just learn learn about the the culture and the history of Ukraine and that whole region and and try to understand, I guess, both sides of the conflict and why it's happening and, you know, make your own critical decision on what's right and what's wrong. And then I think you'll you'll understand it's it's pretty easy to see what's going on and, and uh, who's in the right and who's in the wrong. We thank you for talking to us and uh, sharing your, your family story, and uh, we hope that they stay safe. Thank you very much, and I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> That was Artem Sergeyev, who was born in Kiev, Ukraine, and remains in regular contact with relatives in the capital city amid the Russian invasion. is a conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, football trivia on your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai.
For today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking of an obscure local sports team that brought a league championship to Hawaii over 20 years ago. The title game was played in Austin, Texas in 1999. Our team defeated the team with the best record, the Texas Terminators, at the Travis County Expo Center in front of 4,500 fans. That may not sound like much for a championship game because the sport was indoor football and the league was the Indoor Professional Football League, or IPFL. It was also home to teams like the Louisiana Bayou, Bayou Beast, the Minnesota Monsters, and the Mississippi Fire Dogs. The Hawaii team's mascot was a predatory fish that lives off our shores, and so our team's uniforms were a very appropriate aqua, silver, and black. They played their home games in the Neil S. Blaisdell Center and were coached by Guy Benjamin. Today we're looking for the team's name. Think you know? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. waiting for things to get back to normal. Thousands of displaced families are moving into the fourth month of straddling hotel rooms in fuel-contaminated homes. The Navy Secretary was back in Hawaii for the second time in, in as many months. His visit overlapped with that of EPA administrators last week. All that against the backdrop of the discovery of additional compounds and chemicals in tap water in some homes and buildings. Halsey Terrace is where contaminant levels still exceed safe levels to drink. That is where we caught up with a military mom out walking her dogs, trying to make the best of a tough situation. She, like other military spouses we've talked to, was reluctant to use her name on air. Her family has settled into a routine running to the airport hotel for showers, which is closer to home. Well, my house is one of the houses that was sampled during the first sampling after the flush, and I called to get my results. And they told me that they couldn't give me my results. If they were bad, then they'd let me know. And if they were good, then I want to get them. So that's frustrating, right? Because my house is sampled. I should have the right to those test results. But so, they're good or bad. And so uh, how, how have you been coping during this time? Because it's been three months. Yep, three months. I think at this point we've all adapted. The first month was so difficult on all of us, just the stress level and adapting to new life of don't use the water at all and having to go to the laundromat and you know that takes time it takes a lot of time and of course money and but I think at this point we've adapted well we know that we're going to go to the hotel and take a shower and luckily we're able to afford a hotel on the front side and then get reimbursed um, we're very blessed in that way 
So we were able to procure a hotel on our own, which is two miles away, which is awesome. It's a lot more convenient with the kids. Very much more convenient, especially when you have a middle school or elementary. They both do sports, so they got to take showers after sports. They got to take showers in the morning if they choose. So it's just very difficult. Yeah, so Waikiki doesn't cut it for you. No, that would be, especially sitting in traffic and actually staying at the hotel and living there full time and bringing the kids to school and then having to pick them up from school and then go back and then back to sports. Yeah, no. And you have two dogs. You're walking the dogs tonight. Yep, two dogs and they can't go to the hotel and can't leave them at the hotel, even if I could take them. It's not like I could leave them in a yard. And so they've just told you extended indefinitely until you get the all clear on the on the flushing. Correct. Yep, we're extended. We were extended until the 15th of March, and then we just got word the other day that we're extended until the end of March. And then they just keep automatically extending us. Well, this past week, the head of the EPA came out, the Secretary of the Navy came out again the second time in two months. Uh, I don't know. You feel that enough is being done and you know as you watch all these developments and what are you thinking i think they're doing the bare minimum to make people happy let's just get the situation done and over with um, i don't believe secnav was here just for water contamination there's a lot going on in the world so i think maybe operational readiness is a huge reason why he was here and while he's here he's going to check on the contamination could be could be wrong but i don't think i'm wrong Okay, so the optics maybe are a little different than mm-hmm. what it was uh, uh, back in November. Oh, absolutely. This is not, I think they do the bare minimum. Okay. It's sad. They've had other things turn up in the water. You know, there's a lead in, a, I think, a child care center. There's something called BCEE, and it's not that, I think, is com- that comes from jet fuel, I think. But I don't know, for all these compounds and chemicals that they're finding in your tap water, it's concerning. It's definitely concerning. Why was, why weren't these found before? And where are they coming from? It's, where are they coming from? If it's not from the red fuel tank leak, then where is it coming from and what are they going to do about it? And really, what's our timeline at this point? What are you going to do to fix this entire situation? Have you gone to any of the town hall meetings at all? When, you know, are you satisfied with what they've told you? I did go to the beginning ones. Um, that were in person and I watched in the beginning when they started doing them online I was watching every single one of them and it was like why watch them at this point it's just the same information over and over and over and you're not answering the questions that we're asking so why even bother if something's important somebody's gonna post it and then I'll jump on and I'll watch that whole hour or whatever it is 30 minutes because time is valuable especially when you have to go to the laundromat and so you, your family's basically coping. You have your son getting yeah. water every day. Yep, he gets water every day. It's one of his chores every single day, sometimes twice. He has a cart, and that's what he knows he needs to do. For when he gets home from school, he gets the gallons that are empty, and he goes and fills them up, and then sometimes that takes two trips, and then he'll go get the bottled water, So, which is extremely helpful. Yeah, I mean, if I can grab it, I'll grab it, but... He knows it's one of his chores, so. You're just pulling, all pulling together to yes. make the best of this bad situation. Yep, absolutely. And that was a military mom sharing her thoughts about coping with the Red Hill water crisis. 
Today, the EPA begins a formal investigation into what went wrong at the Red Hill facility. EPA Administrator Michael Regan met with the congressional delegation as well as the governor and military officials last week. At the end of the day, no family should have to question the quality of their drinking water. No family should have to worry about whether or not the drinking water is safe for their children or their parents or their grandparents. Also traveling with Regan was the head of the EPA's Region 9, uh, Martha Guzman, out of San Francisco. Teams of EPA staffers have been on scene since December, rotating out as this drags into now its fourth month. The emergency response is ongoing as a new team with the enforcement branch begins its independent probe of violations of the Federal Clean Water and Drinking Water Act. Here's Guzman. The Interagency Drinking Water Task Force, that's the really difficult work that all of the agencies have been doing for the good of the public, which is to use all of our toxicologists, all of our experts to really come up with risk levels that the state, uh, first and foremost, uh, believes is equally protective. And that's, that's a process that was very difficult, uh, but it's, it's the process that really want, we wanted to have the greatest confidence for the public so that they knew that this is, um, you know, coming from all of our agencies to protect their health. That was EPA Region 9 Administrator Martha Guzman talking about the EPA response to our tainted water crisis. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with online and in-person classes in philosophy, religion, and psychology with start dates through March 24th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. If Hawaii Public Radio's mission of community service resonates with you, and if you're a service-minded self-starter with an eye for detail and a facility with databases, our full-time membership coordinator position may be just the job you're looking for. Find out more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org and let us hear from you. Support for HPR comes from C.S. Woe & Sons. In Hawaii since 1909, providing home furnishings for the islands, from classic to contemporary to casual. Learn more online at cswoandsons.com. Civil Beats Reality Check looks at our housing dilemma today. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us to talk about his story. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Well, I notice your story has a ton of hits. <laughs> maybe it's because it has monster homes in the title. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. But again, the story is about alternatives to monster homes. Again, these the monster homes are these huge places built in residential neighborhoods. They can house a lot of people, which theoretically helps with our housing shortage, but uh, people really don't want them there. Yeah, I mean, and for good reason. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> supposedly single family homes masquerading, uh, or or I would say they're apartment buildings masquerading as single family homes. 
Yes, exactly. That's exactly what they are. So there are other options, though. And so one of the things we looked at were a few places or one place specifically uh, that's being developed according to Bill 7, which is a a Honolulu City Council ordinance that allows for more density in uh, small apartment buildings. And so the idea is, hey, let's let these small apartments uh, be bigger and uh, rent them to people as more affordable housing and see how that works. The challenge has been implementing Bill 7. Again, we've only got two that have passed the, through the sort of regulatory gauntlet of approvals needed to, to get started. And we did talk to one developer who is starting one down on uh, Pensacola Street near Luna Lilo. And so these um, these uh, buildings, though, I mean, these are in areas that are already zoned for apartments? Yeah, so that's the right. One of the main differences is the buildings are already zoned for apartments. Uh, the challenge um, under the previous law was figuring out: well, can we actually uh, build? Um, is can we go as high as we need to to add new um, units and build more apartments? Um, what about parking requirements? You know, you'll see a lot of these buildings have a bunch of parking spaces on the ground floor, and then there's sort of maybe two stories above. You know, one of the questions is, do we really need all that parking? So the um, Bill 7 eliminates some of those um, uh, requirements, allows for more density, allows them to go a little higher, and supposedly should speed up the the approval process. But again, it's just been a little slow to take off. Yeah, I mean, you found out that since it was adopted, like there have been no projects that have gotten off the ground, right? No, none that have been finished. There is the one, at least that we know of, that's gotten off the ground, that started, but mm-hmm. they're really just starting. And so, um, gosh, I mean, how do they get around then these uh, these hurdles? Well, the developer said that he was really tried to be proactive um, in the beginning. Um, his name is Don Wong, and he really tried to be proactive. He talked to the fire department to deal with uh, fire safety issues and, and issues involving uh, getting fire trucks onto this tiny lot and to deal with uh, a fire if it actually happened. Uh, things like Department of Transportation Services. Uh, a challenge would be, uh, how do you pick up garbage? It's it's very small. How do you like drive the truck in and pick up the giant garbage dumpster or whatever? So these are, these are things that uh, for someone who's not as experienced might uh, trip them up and cause delays. He went and handled those ahead of time. Then he went and talked to all the other departments. And there are new, numerous approvals that need to be done in various even sections within DPP that need to, Department of Planning and Permitting that need to sign off of on these things. So he went there ahead of time, worked it out. He said it worked. He, he commended Department of Planning and Permitting for enabling him to, to do it and do it relatively quickly. At the same time, he, he said he was very proactive and very careful. And so these are those uh, kind of underutilized or, or kind of sorry-looking walk-up buildings, right? They, they want them to kind of exactly. renovate and, and make them livable. That's right. I mean, you see them. You see them in Mo'ili Ili. You see them along like Date Street, for instance, um, places like that. And one of, one of the ideas here, again, is that it's not really gentrification in that it's like going to turn these things into something much nicer and push out uh, people who need affordable housing. The idea is to make them nicer and actually provide affordable housing for people. So it, it's really 
what seems to be a very good model for redevelopment. Now, would you call these micro-units? No, they're just apartments. Mm -hmm. They would be regular apartments, um, some as big as a a couple or even, I think, two bedrooms, two-bedroom studios, one-bedrooms. So, no, they're not micro-units. They're just um, apartments that they're allowed to put more on the footprint of these these, uh, buildings. Well, I know the whole idea was to try and encourage people, right, who have these uh, areas that are zoned for apartments to just hurry up and put them up quickly. But it just looks like uh, we've got to work through the, the, the process, and it, it may be painful. Yeah, we do need to work through the process. And, and let's, you know, it, again, there's, there's a lot to be said for figuring this out and letting it go forward. There are 14 in the works right now or, or that are starting the, the permitting process, but there could be thousands of additional buildings that would fit into this uh, model and that could qualify for um, Bill 7 redevelopment. Yeah. Well, can't come soon enough, but thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. regularly follow football, we can tell you a big week is about to launch tomorrow. It's called the NFL Combine. It's held in Indianapolis where college football players from across the country are evaluated by NFL teams through a series of physical drills and mental tests. Today we share a story about a kid from Kohala who was believed to be the first Native Hawaiian to play college football. The year was 1892 and this Hawaii football player was coached by none other than the legendary John Heisman of the Heisman Trophy fame. Yep, that's the award given to the top college football players. But few may know about this young Big Island athlete. John Henry Wise's mother was native Hawaiian. His father was German. And historian Ron Williams came across his story while researching Christian churches in the islands. My dissertation was on the native Christian churches in Hawaii and how they responded to the the overthrow of of Hawaii. And so... I was interested in, in that part because he was taken as a 19-year-old. Uh, he came from Kohala, this young kid from Kohala. He went to Hilo Boarding School, and that was where he was educated. Uh, the, his final principal at Hilo Boarding School was Reverend Olison. Reverend Olison became the founding principal at Kamehameha School for Boys. And so when he, Reverend Olison took that position as founding Kamehameha Schools, he took his brightest students with him. So John Wise came into that first class of students at Kamehameha. Around that time period, you know, the, the leaders of the church, especially the white leaders of the church, when you talk about that institution, it's called the Ahohui Wanaleo Ohawai, or in English, the Hawaiian Evangelical Association. And when you talk about that institution, you know, most people think of it as a Haole institution. It was, it was, it was an American church, and it was these white guys and so forth. But it was actually tens of thousands of Native Christians throughout the islands, you know, kind of running their own churches. But there was a white board in Honolulu that kind of was the administration. That administration kind of got started to get involved in politics. Uh, several of them were actually involved in writing the Bayonet Constitution, which took power from the king. Um, and so the churches started to fight back, and the members did a number of things, including start to leave the churches of the American Protestant Mission for other churches, Catholic churches, the Anglican churches, and so forth, Mormon churches, and they started to fight within their own churches against their white board. So these sons of the mission, sons and grandsons of the first missionaries, were looking for someone to kind of lead Hawaiians back into the church, and they knew they couldn't do it, so they were, they were looking for a Hawaiian. 
And so they saw this young, articulate boy, John Wise, and said, he's, he's a guy for us. And so they raised funds among themselves, and they sent him to Oberlin College, this missionary college in Oberlin, Ohio, near the Great Lakes. He went at 19 years old across the ocean to a different country, right, to San Francisco, California, and then took a train across the United States to, to Oberlin. Um, and we have you know, a whole slew of letters he wrote home Oberlin that are just heartwarming and also pretty funny. He writes one letter where he says, um, please send more money. I need more long underwear. It's freezing here. He's <laughs> <laughs> in the Great Lakes, you know. But he does, he does his training. He, he's faithful. You know, he writes home about how he can't wait to come home and serve the Lord in, in a proper way. And so, he, you know, he's there into 1893, and he gets news of the overthrow from the men who sent him, from Castle and Cook and, and these guys. And so he's concerned, and he writes a beautiful letter home where he says, I so love America, and I love um, Oberlin for giving me this education, but my heart belongs in Hawaii. And he comes home to Hawaii, and these administrators are kind of setting up to send him around the country, and to be honest, kind of tamper down discontent over the overthrow um, in the churches. And he says, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go on your mission, but first I've got to go see my mom. And so he goes back to Kohala and goes to church, the Ole Church in Kohala, and he sees the consternation in the church, and he sees how the pastor is preaching pro-annexation, kind of anti-monarchical rhetoric in the pulpits, and the people aren't having it. You know, they're, mm. they're rising up to kick out the pastor. And he goes to another church, and he sees the same thing. And very quickly, he comes to an understanding of what's going on, and he starts to side with the royalists. Uh, and the gentlemen who sent him and spent the money on his education are furious. They're like, we just trained you to come back and serve us. And, and so he gets cut off from the mission and becomes quite a royalist. Um, he gets arrested in 1895, supporting the queen, and goes to prison. And just starts this, the first half of his life was that involvement in politics, that education, and so forth. And that just springboards him into this really incredible life uh, as a politician, as an athlete, as all of these different things. And the fact that he was so good at football, I mean, who knew? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, so, and so when, he, when he's at Oberlin, so he played baseball at Kamehameha Schools. He mm -hmm. was on that first baseball team at Kamehameha that was created in 1888. And there's a photograph of them. It's very beautiful. And so he's an athlete. He's a carpenter. He's an eloquent speaker of English. He's got lots of skills that he's built up. He's good at math and these types of things. So when he goes to Oberlin, Football is kind of the, the rage in American colleges and universities. And the, one of the things that's not talked about is the fact that the year he goes to Oakland, there were seven deaths in college football. Wow. And they, were, they didn't wear pads. They didn't wear helmets. They just literally banged into each other. Um, in one of his letters home to Kamehameha schools, he says, please don't tell my mom I'm playing football. <laughs> um, but, but he's there. He starts the football team. He's one of the guys that starts the football team there at Oakland. And they're pretty horrible. They go, they, they, they win two games and lose five, and they, they're just kind of goofing around. Uh, and his second year at Oberlin, 1892, there's a gentleman that shows up and says he used to be a, a, you know, a student at Pennsylvania University, University of Pennsylvania. And he says, um, I, I played football at Penn, and uh, I'm out of academics now, and I want to coach. And they say, well, we can't afford to pay you. And he says, no, no, I'll coach for free. And he starts to coach the football team, and he's a brilliant football mind. He introduces all these new things into it's illegal, but people hadn't thought of, into the football and different playing and so forth. Uh, and the team becomes one of the best teams in the country, in the U.S. Um, I found articles in Berkeley newspapers and so forth talking about the great Oakland football team with John Wise at his head. Um, so this kid from Koala, you know, Koala Hawaii, becomes a football star in the U.S. Um, their last games, they, they played two 
two of their final games in Michigan, and they defeat they defeat Michigan and they defeat Ohio State. Um, and they had this huge bonfire back at the school for John Henry Wise. And it, again, it's this it's just a celebration of this kid from a different nation, far out in the middle of the Pacific, as a football hero. Um, now back to his coach. His coach was became quite legendary. His name was Wilhelm Heisman, John Heisman. Uh, so that Heisman Trophy that's given away every year since 1935 to the best college football team in the nation, John Henry Wise played for him in his first coaching position at Oakland. That's amazing. What an incredible story. Right, right. Well, and, it's, and, and I think it's interesting, you know, that in Hawaiian history, we have this general understanding of how history has been tamped down, you know, and there's a very purposeful reason for that. If you look at back at the overthrow and the political events, the annexation and so forth, um, this was a minority government. This was a small group of white men who had overthrown a nation, a sovereign nation of 120, 130,000 people. And so the U.S. at the time, you know, everyone you know, looks at the U.S. as kind of this hegemonic thing. But, but at that period, there were quite a few folks who were against this idea of taking Hawaii. And they were, they were anti-imperialists, um, and they were, you know, they said, we're of the people, by the people, and for the people. How can we let a small group of minority men run a country of 150,000 people. And, and so they had to make, some, make up something. And so they made up this idea that, well, Hawaiians aren't qualified to run their own country. Mm. And there was 60 years of evidence against that, right? Hawaiians had run their country, had become one of the you know, diplomatic nations that was recognized around the world, incredibly progressive modern nation. And so they had to cover up that, that, that history of achievement. So they covered up the, the, the Hawaiian language by taking out Hawaiian language, um, they covered up the accomplishments in the legislature, the diplomatic things, and also the things like John Henry Wise's story. Like the fact that this kid from Kuala could come to America, become a star, and become you know, not only a famous athlete, uh, he became a legislator. Um, he was one of the men who wrote the Hawaiian Homelands Bill, the local version of the Homelands Bill that was passed by Kuhio in 1920. He was an expert in Hawaiian language. He was hired in 1926 to teach Hawaiian language at the University of Hawaii and at Kamehameha Schools. So, so this man who had, had done well financially, had become a star athlete, who had been a, a politician and all of these things, uh, a world traveler, that kind of thing kind of dispels that idea of Hawaiians are capable. You know, and, t- and today, the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame, he's not included in that Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. And so you're on a mission to try and, and make sure that he gets into that Hall of Fame. So I think the first Polynesian they have in there is from the 1940s. This was 50 years before that, yeah. It's just, and it's also the fact that these stories, especially in Hawaii, always connect to the community, right? There, there are many, many relatives of John Henry Wise that I've come across in this research over the last 10 years. Um, so, so it, you know, it's not, he's not only kind of a national hero, but he's somebody for folks to look up to. When I gave um, a talk on this, it, I, I talked to the um, immersion schools in Molokai, um, Hawaiian language immersion schools, and... Um, it, you know, what a hit to these third graders and fourth graders and fifth graders to say, here's a football hero that you guys can look up to who was known across the U.S. and across the world. And I always speak to my students and say, can you imagine having him as your Hawaiian language teacher, this mm-hmm. guy who had gone to prison for defending his country? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just these types of, of people don't exist anymore. And I read in your research that at one time the University of Hawaii had a football field mm-hmm. named after him. Yeah, this was a great project that some of my grad students took up actually about 10 years ago is to the administration building uh, on just on the corner of Dole and University Avenue. There's a large lawn there, and it's called Bachman Lawn yes. nowadays. That originally was the site of the football stadium at UH, 
the year after John Wise passed, the Regents of the University renamed the field John Wise Field. Uh, and they actually never changed it. So, so today, the, the, the name of that field still is John Wise, John Henry Wise Field. So it's a matter of bringing those things back and remembering these heroes. Is there a plaque there at all to acknowledge that? There's, there's not. There's not, oh. to my knowledge. Um, the, like I said, the students have, have referred to it as Wise Hall now in all their publications and so forth. They do have events there. I don't think there's any um, physical marking of the field yet. That was Hawaii historian Ron Williams talking about John Henry Wise, believed to be the first Native Hawaiian star college football player who was coached by the legendary John Heisman. Williams believes that John Henry Wise deserves a place in the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name the team that brought home a football championship in 1999 and then vanished as quickly as it appeared. The sport was indoor football, and the league was the IPFL, or Indoor Professional Football League. Its slogan, Great Football, No Gimmicks. Over the course of its existence from 1999 to 2001, 14 teams from medium-sized cities around the country participated. While indoor football leagues have been around for years, the IPFL was unique because it was played with a white football, which was supposed to be easier to see under artificial lighting conditions. The Hawaii team played in home games in the Neil S. Blaisdell Center, and at the end of the 1999 season, won the league championship with a 28-13 victory over the top-seeded Texas Terminators at the Travis County Expo Center in Austin. But despite its success on the field, the team struggled financially. And so the Hawaii Hammerheads, the answer to today's backyard quiz, folded after its lone season. Congrats to Ryan from Kihei. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Puahana on Waialai Avenue in Kaimuki, featuring fresh flowers and lei, floral arrangements, and more. On the web at puahanahawaii.com. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air online or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. On this week's On the Media, we're talking about Puerto Rico, specifically La Brega, a term Puerto Ricans use to describe the kind of problem you can't easily solve. When I hear or use La Brega, I'm referring to the struggle. It also reveals something about the island's history and maybe where it's headed. Don't miss this week's On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. Hawaii Sweet Tooth and Baking Aficionados, get ready. Season 8 of the Food Network Spring Baking Championship kicks off tonight. It's like a floral bonanza tea party. Just like bursts of spring. It's me. Are you ready? And 
brought new challenges inspired by my life on the farm. Magnificent! Including some of the biggest twists in spring baking history. What? This is going to be one wild spring ride. Season premiere, Spring Baking Championship. And among the competitors is Punaho alum, Carolyn Portuando. She's the head pastry chef at the Aulani, a Disney resort and spa. Her work was featured on TLC's Fabulous Cakes. She's won dozens of awards and owned a successful bakery in Las Vegas. So why did she accept the opportunity to compete against other bakers on national television? Well, the conversations Russell Sibiono spoke to Portuando about her experience. You know, a competition type that actually in any setting is one of those experiences that I've never partook in. And I just thought it would be a great learning experience for me to just see new things and meet new people in the industry. Sometimes when you get trapped in one area or one location, it's hard to see new things. And I just thought of it as a great opportunity to meet new people and see different aspects of the industry. Are you a naturally competitive person? Do you Did you play sports in high school or anything? I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm probably a 10 for <laughs> competitiveness. Yeah. Although I don't act competitive with other people, uh-huh. I think I'm extremely competitive with myself. Yeah. Basically, I am a competitive person, but I did not play sports in, in school. I basically just went to school because Midilani is so far from Ponoho, so I was stuck in traffic most of the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hear you. So you kind of just hold yourself to a really high standard, which I think is pretty evident in a lot of the, the pictures of the creations that I've seen you do. I mean, you really do a great job of just really making sure your cakes look exactly like the thing that was ordered. I've seen pictures of a guitar and of a purse. I could tell that you hold yourself to a very high standard. I mean, I think I think it's important to have <clears throat> high standards for yourself and especially to be a good example if you're a leader you know to have if you have high standards for yourself then if people follow you or work with you or or working for you you know hold themselves a little bit higher it's basically i try to lead by example and no matter what i do i try to do it the best of my ability so i don't look back on it and think about it hey i wonder if i did this it would have been better you know when you participate in these kinds of tv competitions and you show up on the first day What's the thing that catches you by surprise the most, the thing that you didn't expect to encounter beforehand? Just the first step into the barn, the initial um, like step into the kitchen set was probably the most eye-opening thing for me. It's, you know, you, you always prep yourself like, oh, I'm going to go on Spring Baking Championship. I'm going to you know, participate on the food, ne- on the food Network. But you don't really feel it until you step onto the set. And you're like, oh, geez, I'm here. Like, this is for real. It's happening. I think for me, that was the point where I was kind of became reality that everything I make is going to be on national TV. So I'm not really in the privacy of my own bake shop, stuff like that. So it became became reality, actually, when I stepped in there that this is happening, which was kind of fun, actually. When you stepped onto set, are the equipment and the things that are there to help you participate in the competition, are they the things that you are familiar with or do they kind of just have a base set of equipment for you to work with? You know, the, the set is exactly what you see on TV and it's like exactly, I mean, it's, it's a good representation of what any baker would need or any pastry chef would need. 
if you're in the industry, you're, you should be familiar with all the items that they have there. They, have, they do have everything you could possibly think of available. And it's a pretty accurate, like an accurate kitchen. It's hard to anticipate what you're going to need before to get the challenge. So they do have everything available that you would need. That was always something I wondered. Another thing, oh. yeah, another thing I always wonder, my wife watches a lot of baking shows and every now and again, I'll wander past the TV and I'll see something that I wish I could eat myself. So I've always wondered, where do all these delicious looking creations go? Does the audience or the crew get to eat them? Oh, you mean when we make it on the show? Yeah. The judges are tasting our food. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, there's not a whole lot of extra. I mean, because of, you know, nature of what's happening now with like COVID and everyone being very cautious about mm -hmm. sanitation and all that. We don't typically share food on our filming set. We didn't just because everybody is, you know, working on their own. Yeah. And we try not to cross many paths because we wanted to make sure everyone was healthy for the whole thing. You know, in my situation, I don't know what they did prior, but I know that, that all of the judges taste the food. And after that, we typically don't know what happens to it. Okay. So we don't go around and eat everyone's food after like a picnic or anything. Yeah. yeah. Maybe yeah. I should I should give the producers my, my address. They can send it to me. I'll, I'll eat it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when I did some research on you, I found that you're a double major in chemistry and biology, and you worked as a lab assistant to pathologists before switching gears. Yeah to attend the Culinary Institute of America and become a pastry chef. How does your yep. chemistry background make you a unique chef? It made me more comfortable with converting recipes to grams. And I was very comfortable using a scale. Everything is scaled in baking. And I think down to your chemistry of actually the ingredients, like baking powder, baking soda, leaveners. I mean, I think it gave me a background of understanding why we use things and what you can substitute for them. Most citation chefs will just learn it on the job or, or learn it through experience, but I was lucky to have that experience as a chemist. So I kind of understood how to sub other ingredients or why something is added for what purpose to the recipe. I think that's such a fascinating knowledge set to have to kind of know the inner workings of how a recipe comes together. You know, during the, yeah. the various shutdowns around the country during the pandemic, there were a lot of stories of people indulging more in hobbies like baking. I think banana bread was all the rage for a while. Did the pandemic mm -hmm. give you extra time to come up with some new ideas? See, during the pandemic, I worked. I was actually only on furlough for a few months. That wasn't off of work for too long. But luckily, was able to come back to my, my job. But when I was off, honestly, I didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, I, we worked so much during our normal life that it was honestly felt very surreal to not have to check emails or people calling in sick and trying to fill the schedules and, and doing wedding cake. It, it was like, a, huh, I don't have anything to do today. And I don't have to check emails or go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. I did teach through Zoom. Some of my coworkers' kids who were home from school, they wanted to learn how to bake, so I would do Zoom lessons with them. But I didn't use the time to develop any new, any new techniques or anything. I tried to stay away from baking as much as possible. I imagine you've gotten a lot of requests from celebrities for custom cakes in the past. 
Who have you been mm-hmm. hired by that you've been the most starstruck by? I was really excited to make a cake for Celine Dion. This was a long time ago when I was in Las Vegas. She's one of my favorite singers, and she was resident at Caesar's Palace, and it was her birthday, and they asked me to make a birthday cake for her, so that was pretty cool. I don't really see too many people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm usually in the back making it and then deliver it prior to them arriving, so I don't really get to see the reaction that they get. I think the most starstruck and awestruck person I've ever came into encounter with would probably be Bob Iger. Oh, really? Yeah, the big boss of Disney. Yeah. I was able to serve him and create some amenities for him and and desserts for him when he uh, came to visit. I think that was probably the most starstruck I've ever been. Yeah, that's that's a big deal. You know, it was, a, oh, hello, sir. Hi, sir. Right. Oh, how are you doing, sir? You know, it was very, like, usually I'm very comfortable, but when I saw him, I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I imagine that would be ultra professional as well. Speaking of banana bread, can you settle a disagreement between me and my wife? Approximately sure. how overripe do bananas need to be? I say just spotty. She thinks they should be nearly all black. Me, personally... I try not to wait till they're all gone because usually that means that there's a part of it that's probably rotten. But the riper, the better, for sure. The mushier, the better, in my opinion. Yeah, so it sounds so, like maybe maybe somewhere in between, maybe just... Uh, yeah, compromise. Yeah. You, you anywhere to compromise on the blackness of the banana. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> right on. Thank you so much for your time, yeah. Carolyn. I really appreciate it, and I really had fun talking to you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And that was HPR's Russell Sobiano talking with local pastry chef Carolyn Portuundo about competing on the Food Network's Spring Baking Championship. You can cheer her on tonight when the season of eight premieres at 6 p.m. Well, that is it for today. Tomorrow, we continue to hear from other Hawaii residents with ties to Ukraine. What do you think about the growing tensions with Russia? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.